Hey guys, you're listening to the PhD Podcast, a show where I interview PhD students and discuss their project. In doing so, I hope to give students a chance to talk about their work and a chance to introduce the public to some new groundbreaking research. I'm your host, Mwidia Sikunika, or call me Mo. Let's roll. Hey guys, welcome back to the PhD Podcast. So today I have Nick Anthony. He's from the Physics Department at La Trobe University. So Nick, how are things going? Pretty good. What about yourself? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Um, so first question I always ask is, can you describe your PhD project in two minutes? Hopefully. <laughs> Sorry, that's a good start. I had to give you something to edit out. That's um, <laughs> also, it's actually the um, Department of Chemistry and Physics. So, um, how's your PhD going, Department of Chemistry and Physics? Thank you for asking. My PhD is concerned with the development of a new type of microscopy. So basically what we're trying to do is look at the forces within things like cells or any other type of material science. So the way that we plan to do this is using something called coherent diffractive imaging. So it sounds complicated, but basically what it means is we have a some type of light source. In our case, it's a red laser. We shine it through our sample, and the light interacts with all the tiny little things within the sample, and they diffract. So they interact with the bits and kind of shoot off at random angles. Um, unlike a regular microscope, which collects images um, using lenses, ours doesn't have any lenses. So rather than a really nice, clear image, you actually just get this speckle, so just random bits of intensity. Um, we do that at a whole lot of different points on the sample and then use computer algorithms to get back what the image actually looked like. So it may sound a little complicated, and you know, why should we bother with doing something like that when you can just use a regular microscope? And basically the strength comes down to what extra information we can get using this technique. So a regular microscope that you use, you know, in any type of lab or, you know, wherever you are, hopefully everybody's seen one, um, so. <laughs> gives you a uh, intensity image. So it's literally how the light has been changed going through the sample. So how much of it's been absorbed. What our technique can do is that can actually tell you how the light has been shifted as it goes through the sample. Um, and this information we call it phase information. So there's a whole lot of microscopies called phase contrast microscopies. Um, but basically, this type of phase information is really useful in things like biological cells, where they, there's not really quite enough there to um, give you a very good intensity image in a regular microscope. But when you look at the phase, the way that the light's shifted going through it, there's just all of this new information that you can get. Um, and what makes my microscope, or our microscope, I should say, particularly interesting is that we can actually use this phase information that we get at a couple of different configurations to get information about the forces within the cells. Awesome. So first question would be, um, what is your... So with your diffraction data, essentially, that you collect, how do you transfer that into the images you want to see? So we collect um, diffraction data at multiple points on the sample. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, it's just kind of a speckly pattern. Um, and you use a mathematical basis called Fourier transforms, which it really doesn't matter what it is, but it's just something that's used a lot in signal processing. And basically you take your speckle data, apply a Fourier transform to it. Yep. It changes it in such a way that it gives you an image. And then you look at it and you say, oh, that's not quite right. You do an inverse Fourier transform, so you reverse that. And then you basically just do that process over and over again, maybe applying some constraints, you know, some information that you know about the sample until you get an image that you're happy with. So it's like flipping a pancake. You've got to flip each side until you get the right consistency of your pancake. Yeah, I like that that analogy. 
So how did you get into coherent diffractive imaging then? Um, I'm not really sure. So I know that during my honours year, which I also did at La Trobe, completely different project, I just really enjoyed doing the research a lot more than I enjoyed subjects. So research is very different to, you know, the rest of your university education. And basically at the end of my honours, I was looking around seeing what other research people do and I came across um, my current research group and they just seemed to be doing really interesting things. And one of them was this uh, imaging using coherent fractive imaging. And then it just kind of fell into it, Um, which ended up being really great because I've learnt that I get bored with science that doesn't include pretty pictures. (laughs) That's probably a good thing that he's doing this then because some science involves no pictures and you'd want to kill yourself and do that <laughs> on a full-time basis, in my opinion. Yep. <laughs> so what type of cells do you look at using your um, imagery? So since my PhD has been mainly concerned with the development, we haven't really gone too far. Okay. But I do have two awesome examples that I'm currently analysing data from. Yep. Yeah, so we're looking at a particular branch of T-cells known as the Jerkat T-cells. Yep. Um, what that means, I'm not entirely sure. I'm the physicist looking at them, not the biologist that, you know, does so biology. All I know is that there's T-cells and now there's Jerkat's T-cells. So yes. And memory T-cells. And mate. And mate T-cells as well. So there's three different types of T-cells that we know between the two of us, which is a good start. <laughs> yeah. It's good for a guy that does proteins and a guy that does physics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but what we're really interested in with these T-cells and the reason that um, the samples were given to us by some people at the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science... Yep, limbs. Yep, just name dropping a little bit. Yep. (laughs) Um, Was that they're really curious in the processes behind what's called apoptosis or programmed cell death. Um, So there's not really a lot known about what changes within a cell, in particular its membrane, um, leading up to the death process. So they're hoping that by looking at the forces or the stresses within the cell, we'll get some information about what's happening as they, you know, kind of die. So what's the other type of thing you're looking at other than these Jokat T cells that you mentioned? I like that you keep using the word jerkat. Thank you. you know, the more we use it, the more we'll understand. Yeah, it's it. a great word. Um, so the other thing that we're looking at is actually some yeast cells. Um, so we're interested in knowing how their death changes depending on the conditions that they're placed in. Okay. Um, so at the moment, the only way that you can tell between a live and a dead T cell... Uh, sorry. The only way you can tell the difference between a live and a dead yeast cell is by using fluorescence markers, Okay. Um, which isn't always ideal. So what we're basically hoping is that with our microscope, we'll be able to see some type of force difference between the two of them to be able to distinguish without having to tag them. Yeah. So these fluorescent microscopes, they include stuff like GFP, which is green fluorescent protein. So you're trying to not use that anymore? Yes. Okay. And the reason behind that was because, again? Um, Correct me if I'm wrong from a biochemist point of view. But there's, it's not always ideal to tag whatever you're trying to look at with fluorescent it's tags. It's kind of true. It all depends. If you're trying to like purify a protein of a tag, some tags actually inhibit correct um, formation of the proteins. But I don't know in terms of looking at a whole cell how GFP works with it. So that's something interesting to look at, I guess. Yeah. So I guess the more native that you can image something or gather information about it, the better your results will be or the more accurate you'll be able to draw conclusions. Nice. So it's probably not the main outcome, but it's a outcome of using a new type of microscopy like this. And you're using just simple baker's yeast? (laughs) I believe so, yeah. I believe so. You really have no idea about the biology part, do you? No, sorry. (laughs) Ask me any question about physics and I'll do my best, but... 
biology I just leave to you guys. So do you do most of your experiments here at La Trobe University or do you go to like the synchrotron for example to look at some things? So I've been lucky and I've done a lot of synchrotron work through my um, PhD and my research experience here yep. at La Trobe but I'm also incredibly lucky and my setup that I'm using for my PhD we've designed and built in-house. Okay. So I've got a extremely dark room in my building that we let no light into which can get a little depressing sometimes. <laughs> Do you ever stub your foot on, like, a table? Oh, constantly. Yep. Um, Steel caps? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not a bad idea. I should really invest. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very lucky, and I have my complete lab set up here. So yep. I don't have to go anywhere. Yeah, so the synchrotron, for people that don't know, it's basically a large... How do we describe the synchrotron? Basically, it's... Uh, so Australia has a synchrotron, which is really awesome. Um, a bit of world-class science. Yep. It's great to have in our backyard. Correct. Um, and basically what it is, is it's a massive machine that spins around electrons at very close to the speed of light. If you remember the whole Large Hadron Collider from 2008, where they thought the world was going to end when they opened it, this is the same thing, but smaller. <laughs> well, slightly different. So the it's Large Hadron <laughs> Collider smashes things together. Yes, it does. So a synchrotron just spins them around really, really fast mm -hmm. and uses the energy that they emit to do science. Yep. That's, that's probably the more correct term in my <laughs> term. But yeah, think of CERN, but smaller, without smashing things together. Yeah, but not too small. So the Australian synchrotron's about the size of the MCG. And probably cost as much as the MCG to build. Uh, just a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure it costs the same amount to build Etihad Stadium as it did to build the synchrotron. I'm pretty sure I saw somewhere. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's close to $300 million. Back in 2001, was that when the synchrotron was built? I don't know. Okay. It sounds about right. It sounds about right, yeah. Because it's, it's right next to Monash University, essentially. So if you ever drive towards Springvale for some reason, um, if you ever drive towards Springvale, <laughs> you'll see that there's a couple of Monash signs. When you look to your left on Blackburn, Blackburn Road. Road, you'll see this big thing saying Singatron. That's where it is. And that's where a lot of really good research actually takes place, where people sell structures, people do the work that Nick does as well. And there's many other things that can be done there as well. So it's not just a one-off thing for just physics people. It's there for multiple disciplines. Oh, actually, the majority of users at the synchrotron are um, biological sciences. And the other thing is people travel from around the country to this machine because it's the only one in Australia. So trying to get time to use it is quite a hectic process trying to get time. And when you do get time, you're literally trying to use all of that time as best as possible. Does the synchrotron do external super um, external usage so you can use it via a computer uh, yes yeah. we actually have a facility like that at Latrobe yeah so basically if you can't go to Singatron come to Latrobe is what Nick's saying for physics definitely yeah also the Department of Chemistry and Physics yes that yeah. is correct yes but physics especially because we've got three ERA ratings above five take what's, that so what's the ERA rating <laughs> excellence in research Australia so Nick I know you as the president or the former president of the Physics Society so how did you get into doing that so the Latrobe Physics Society started uh, in 2012. What are we now? 2016. No, yes. that can't be right. 16. 2013. Latrobe Physics Society started in 2013 when a couple of us got together and realised that it would be nice to have a group of people of you know a similar interest being physics um, together just to kind of hold some social and academic events. So it started with our president, um, Ms. soon-to-be Dr. Hannah Coughlin. Yep. Just a fun fact for those playing at home. 
Um, yeah, and I was lucky enough in my first year of my PhD to take over as president, where we just, you know, really did a couple of great things to help out not only physics, but also science at the Trobe, um, which involved things like our LIMS research symposium. So we got a couple of researchers out from um, industry, academia, and uh, outside of science, but with a science degree, just to talk about their experiences. Or we held a... Um, we held a careers night with the Australian Institute of Physics. So basically just an opportunity for a whole heap of undergraduates to learn what you can do with a degree in physics. So some good fun. Yeah, and um, another thing I remember was uh, there was a lot of collaborations between their group as well as the biochemistry group as well. That's how we kind of got to know each other really as well. That's how I met you really. Yeah, So well, and that's a beautiful thing about student groups yeah, is exactly. that you do get opportunities to meet other people. But you wouldn't meet any other way, like, because the physics building isn't near my building, so we wouldn't have met in a staff room. Yeah. I should take you on a tour after this, though. Sure. I'm going to get a tour after this, guys. <laughs> okay. Um, so you are currently a third-year student, two and a half, three years. What is it? Two years, eight months, but who's counting? Yeah, not you. Oh, clearly so. <laughs> um, would you plan to stick around doing your postdoc in the same lab? Because it sounds like you're really enjoying the work, or are you thinking more towards expanding your expertise in a different field? So my lab is really great. We're the only ones actually applying this whole coherent refractive imaging technique to this um, force measurements. So it's really interesting. We're finally at the stage where our microscope is quite capable of taking high-resolution and highly accurate data. So I would love, love, love to continue doing research here. Yep. Um, but I think it's about time to move on. I've done my undergraduate, my honours, and my PhD now at La Trobe. So <laughs> it's... Um, Time to move on. Whether that's continuing in research, I'm not quite sure yet. Um, as you know, Mo, there's a lot of other ways to use a PhD that's in science. Right. Yep. There's more than just one path, as we've been told more and more these days, which is yep. awesome we, here. It's so. very important to hear that. Exactly. Lots of transferable skills, I hear they say. Yeah, me too. I've read a lot of things about 20 transferable skills you learn in a PhD. Huh. Yeah, exactly. Can you list them? <laughs> No, I cannot list them. Um, I know Excel is one of them, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, using Excel is actually quite a big skill because people don't know how to use a simple program with tabs. Okay, wow. So, yeah, and I'm set for that if that's the case. Yeah, I'm just feeling really overqualified now. So, earlier you did mention that you get high-resolution pictures. Is it really high-resolution? Like, is it like the 4K resolution, HD resolution, <laughs> or, is it not, or is it a lot better than that now? So, quite different scales when we're talking about 4K resolution yep. um, of a TV compared to a scientific resolution. Okay. So high resolution I probably shouldn't use because in the world of microscopy, so just looking at things mm-hmm. with light and lenses, high resolution is basically a couple of hundred nanometers. Okay. So for those who don't know, a nanometer is a unit of measurement, like a meter, mm-hmm. um, specifically one billionth of a meter. which is to the power of negative nine. That's correct. Um, and if we are going to put that in a bit of perspective, if a marble was one nanometer, a meter would be the size of the Earth. So very, very tiny. So very high-resolution optical microscopes, so ones that use visible light, can get probably 300, 400 nanometer resolution. Our technique can get about one micron or 1,000 nanometer resolution. So it's pretty, pretty good. Impress- that's pretty impressive. But um, not quite as high as those, or 4K resolution on TVs, I think, mean they have a pixel size of about 3,000 nanometers. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and just enough pixels stuck together. Yeah, exactly. Stuck together to give you such a crisp TV experience. Beautiful. So you also mentioned that you use red light. What's the difference between red light and infrared light then? 
Um, so it all comes down to the wavelength. Okay. So light has a physical size, which we call its wavelength, mm -hmm. um, which we measure in nanometers. So a red light has a wavelength of about 630 nanometers, um, which is basically just the way that the waves propagate, if I can say that. So red light compared to infrared light is just a difference in wavelength. Um, where red light that we're used to is shorter, which means we can use it to get higher resolutions. Technically, we can see red light, right? Yep. Yeah. Whereas infrared light, obviously, you can't see it. No. So, okay, cool. All right, well, just the last um, bit I like to do is fast five, and I just ask you five quick questions um, that hopefully you'll be able to answer quickly. Um, so first question, if you had a choice at a conference, would you prefer to do a poster or an oral presentation? Oral presentation any day. Um, what do you prefer to drink in the morning, coffee or Red Bull? Coffee all the way. Would you prefer doing a late night at uni or would you do weekend work at uni? Uh, unfortunately, both. <laughs> Which one do you prefer? If you had a choice, uh, if you had a choice, oh, I have to do an extra couple of hours at night or I can just come in on a Saturday, what would you prefer to do? Probably night. Currently, what's a TV show of choice? Oh, that's actually a tough one. I'm going to say The Flash just because it's amazing. Fair enough. He, he's speed of light as well, so speed, what you work yeah. with. And last question, what is your favourite thing about PhD life? Oh, the greatest thing about PhD life for me would have to be the, the research that I get to do is you know truly groundbreaking and the people that I get to work with and to talk to in my research, just, you know, it's fun. Okay, thanks for that, Nicholas. I um, hope you enjoyed yourself and thanks for telling us about your work with Cohere and Diffractive Imaging. Thank you, Mo. It was great to be here. So easy. And thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening. All episodes can be found on the PhD Podcast Facebook page. You can subscribe via iTunes on Apple, listen on SoundCloud, or add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed. Have any thoughts? Feel free to leave a comment on the Facebook page or on iTunes or on SoundCloud, as I hope to read them all. Once again, thank you for listening.